This is the Blue Tarp. Stories of Alaska's northern Susitna Valley is told by those who lived them. We're back after an unexpected mid-season hiatus due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on the Blue Tarp, we travel to what used to be a thriving hub of railroad activity, but today is a bit of a ghost town. Whether you're an old-timer or a newcomer, there's room under the Blue Tarp for everyone. Today, we're headed to Curry, a place up the tracks from Talkeetna that's been the site of a luxury hotel, a thriving small town, and many homesteads. Today, only the barest remains of its former glory poke through the forest along the tracks and the Susitna River. Join us as we head up the tracks and back in time. Talkeetna Historical Society is a proud sponsor of the Blue Tarp. Since its inception in 1972, the Society has been dedicated to preserving the unique history of our small, rural Alaskan community. The museum, formerly Talkeetna's one-room schoolhouse, as well as two other historic buildings, have permanent exhibits on view year-round. www.talkeetnahistoricalsociety.org or 907 733-2487 for more information or to make a contribution. What would eventually become Curry was previously known to those working on the railroad as Dead Horse Hill. Ken Marsh is a local historian who's considered to be an authority on Curry. In fact, he literally wrote the book called Lavish Silence. He said Dead Horse Hill got its name from an unfortunate wildlife encounter during construction on the railroad. I found out that it had once been called a Dead Horse Hill, and of course the story on that is is that when they were uh, working on the uh, railroad up that way, this would have been the, uh, the the early railroad, not the Alaska Railroad, that that a team of horses had been scared by a bear, and on this hill they ran down and uh, got killed. It crashed and they died. And everything that I've ever seen still says that's the story and that's how it got its name, that, you know, whether or not it, that's an old old folks tale, I don't know, but it's always stuck there. Everybody from Alaska Nelly who lived there on has stated that was the facts and that that is what happened and how it got its name of Dead Horse Hill. One of the central characters of this period of Curry's history was Alaska Nelly Neal, who operated a roadhouse on Dead Horse Hill around the time the Curry Hotel opened. Stories about Alaska Nelly could easily fill an entire episode of this podcast, and maybe one day they will. Alaska Nelly trapped, hunted, fished, and even says she served breakfast to President Warren G. Harding. But for now, we'll leave you with this sample taken from a 1939 radio interview. By the way, I must tell you about one convenience I have in my home, which is built of logs right on the shore of Lake Kenai. My kitchen window opens right on the lake, and I often put out a throw line, run it through the window, and attach it to a little bell while I go about my housework. 
I've heard you speak about the time o'clock and the warning bell on your electric range, Martha. But I catch fish for dinner. He rings my little bell to let me know that dinner is on the hook. <laughs> All I have to do is to run to the kitchen and pull him in through the window. <laughs> well, I think that's fishing de luxe. And uh, speaking of fishing, reminds me of the pictures you showed me uh, of your trophy room. Will you tell us something about your experiences hunting big game? Well, most of my hunting has been for food and occasionally for protection. I don't know just how many trophies I have, and among them are eight moose, 16 sheep, three goats, and 21 bear. By the way, I have a patriotic collection of bear skins. In addition to brown, black, silver, and yellow bear, I have red, white, and blue bear as well. The blue bear is the glazier bear. The red and yellow bear were both freaks. The red bear, incidentally, has a yellow streak down his back. I mean this literally. He does have a yellow streak of yellow fur. Of the moose heads, one has antlers extending 72 inches from tip to tip and has 48 points, the largest number ever known of the bear species. The largest was nine and a half foot brown bear, which I shot after he had wounded me and killed my little pet black bear. You had a pet bear? Yes, I've had several. Do they make good pets, Nellie? Well, no. You really can never trust them. They're very mischievous and rather dangerous to have around when they get too large. But they're awfully cute when little, and I have some very humorous things happen with them. Once I came home to find my little black bear pet acting peculiarly. He seemed to be having a good time, but couldn't walk straight. And when he sat down in front of me, he tipped backwards against my leg with the silliest expression on his face you ever saw. Didn't have the slightest idea what was the matter with him until I smelled his breath. He was drunk. Come to find out he had gotten into our wine supply. Another time, I had a young lady occupying a cabin next to me. In the middle of the night, I was awakened by her terrified screams. I rushed to her cabin to see what was the matter, and she cried out to me to be careful, for there was a mad bear on the foot of her bed. Sure enough, there was my pet bear foaming at the mouth. It frightened me, too, and I kept it a distance from him. But as he followed me out, I noticed he dropped something on the floor. It was a cake of soap, and frothing at the mouth, nothing but soap bubbles. <laughs> that was the eventual changing of the name to Curry from Dead Horse Hill was far more prosaic. Dead Horse Hill, while evocative, isn't necessarily a great choice for the name of a major stopover point, so it was renamed for Senator Charles Curry from California, who'd helped pass legislation assisting railroad development in Alaska. Curry became a very important place to the railroad, as it was about halfway between Seward and Fairbanks at rail mile 248 and a half. As a result, it became an important stopover point for refueling the trains, the crew, and the passengers. By 1923, the Curry Hotel was open. In today's money, its final incarnation would cost more than $9 million. Situated in the middle of the wilderness, the hotel was built as a taste of luxury in the middle of nowhere. Ken Marsh reads from correspondence he had with Ralph Omholt, whose family moved to Curry in 1955. At its peak, the Curry Hotel was an incredible collection of luxury. While the exterior was relatively simple, the interior was something to behold, regardless of how seemingly small the hotel may have been. The original floors were polished hardwood covered in expensive carpets. The hallways were carpeted, as were the rooms. The beds were a mixture of enameled steel, elegant wood frame, 
and some brass bed frames. Naturally, the rest of the furnishings in the rooms were comparable. Uh, the hotel in 1955 is an interesting landmark of its time. Few rooms had a bathroom versus the common bathrooms down the hall. The demographics of Alaska dictated that the women's bathrooms were half the size of men's bathrooms. The rooms had a chest of drawers and nothing resembling a closet. Part of the luxury afforded to guests of the Curry Hotel was a professional chef to prepare meals. In the spring of 1942, that chef was Nicholas Maricus. Maricus came from Smyrna, which was then a part of Greece and now a part of Turkey. We don't have any records of his voice, but we do have a print interview he gave for the March 1942 issue of Alaska Magazine. Between ads for war stamps and evaporated milk, and interspersed with continued articles talking about World War II in the present tense, Marika shares the whirlwind culinary journey that led him to Alaska. You know, in the old country, cooking is a studied art. In my native land, we cook in olive oil and in wine. You have no idea what they do to make an ordinary dish into an Epicurean classic. If you come from Europe and decide you want to be a chef, it's a momentous decision. You're in for the game of your life. You can go from country to country to improve your skill. You'll never stop learning. I made a trip around the world in order to learn the best dishes of various civilizations. In England, I cooked at Cardiff, Liverpool, and in London. In 1914, I joined the U.S. Army Transport Service and for the next three years fed up to a thousand hungry people on ranges that never stood still. During those years, I visited Honolulu, Japan, China, Hong Kong, and the Philippines. Incidentally, oriental dishes are well worth knowing, and some of the dishes of Japan and China are used far more green stuff than many of our American favorites. Personally, I enjoy adventuring in foreign foods. You can learn a great deal about the people by the food they eat, and that applies to nationally as well as individually. Even in the 21st century, providing a luxury experience in the interior of Alaska is a logistical challenge. Nearly 80 years ago, Chef Moricus had many guests who were astonished that it was even possible, though feeding everyone sometimes required a little improvisation. Most travelers visiting Curry for the first time are astonished at the $600,000 hotel it is set out here in the middle of Alaska's wilderness. Often, hotel operators and restaurant men traveling on the railroad come out to the kitchen and ask me how such a big plant can make any money. I tell them, Curry doesn't make money. It can't. It's a convenience to the traveler. And the policy of the railroad is to feed them the best food at a reasonable price. And that's what we do. Our dining room seats 54, and at one time we had 450 to feed. The waitress would have worked until daybreak if we had served the guests the usual manner. So we turned the dining room and the lobby into a huge cafeteria. Everyone enjoyed the experience, and they all ate what they wanted. Actually, they consumed less food than in the same number of dining room servings. The average is about 3,000 meals a month. Of course, not all of these are passenger meals, cash meals. The 3,000 figure includes our employees and the staff at Curry. We call these regular boarders and stockholders. Then there are the passenger train crews, the freight crews, and in the winter, the men who operate the rotary snowplow and the two locomotives that push the rotary around. The snow fleet is in Curry from January 
until about April. The fancy meals, golf course, pool, and other unusual amenities for such a remote accommodation wouldn't last forever. We'll take a closer look at the decline of Curry and the ultimate fate of the hotel in part two of this episode. Denali Arts Council proudly supports the Blue Tarp. Since its inception in 1981, DAC has held its mission with integrity, valuing diversity, artistry, and community, aiming to create and nurture community-based opportunities for artistic expression. The Sheldon Community Arts Hangar, home of the DAC, offers a space to engage with the arts and community in an integrated and nostalgic way. Denali Arts Council continues to develop their ongoing programs such as Greenlight Circus, Hangar Door Cinema, Denali Drama, North Wall Gallery, and the Music Academy to name a few. Denali Arts is always filling its calendar with music, workshops, film, and ways to collaborate with local and international art projects. DAC brings the community together. Visit www.denaliartscouncil.org and Denali Arts Council on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on happenings. Welcome back. While Curry certainly had its time in the sun, that period would not last forever. Over time, changes in technology reduced Curry's significance. Sue Dio is the executive director of the Talkeetna Historical Society. She describes how the March of Progress made the community increasingly obsolete. Curry was a town. I mean, people lived. There, were, there was a school. The, um, Curry had a schoolhouse. Um, Curry was a bigger town than Talkeetna, uh, almost. At one point, there were more kids uh, in the Curry schoolhouse than there were in the Tokina schoolhouse back in the day. Because that was really, truly the overnight stay, and um, it, it made sense. It, it makes sense if you think about it. But when, when the train s- switched from steam, you know, to what the way they run today, there's, there wasn't, there's, Curry became obsolete in a way. There wasn't a reason for mm-hmm. Curry to exist. I mean, that was the big, big thing. You had to stop somewhere along and refuel those trains. And once they changed, once they switched over, bit by bit, it was like, well, it just doesn't make any sense anymore, even though Curry had this big, it was really a resort in a way. Um, but once the building burned, they were like, well, you know, there's not a reason. Um, there's really only a couple of pictures that I've seen of Curry as Curry as a town. And there were a long line of houses right along the railroad tracks. Ken Marsh has letters from Ralph Olmholt describing growing up in the railroad boomtown that was slowly going bust. I used to spend a fair amount of time wandering through the hotel as a kid, though there was really hoping for some lost treasure, but there really was none to be found. But there were just a lot of boring, empty rooms. Still, I'd revisit them just in case something had changed. Naturally, many folks in 1955 still talked about the luxuries which had gone by, the enclosed swimming pool, which had been torn down with the pool backfilled with dirt and was now a garden in 1955. The area where the golf course had been, 
located was now overgrown with willows. In contrast to the luxury of the hotel was the garbage disposal system for the whole establishment. This system consisted of a wooden dump ramp to merely employ the Susitna River as the means of disposing of all forms of garbage and trash. In comparison, the public town garbage would be piled as near the river's edge as possible, letting the river eventually rise up to take it downstream towards Talkeetna. Their garbage, our garbage was their reward. On especially boring days, I would walk down streams trying to stumble upon a treasure that had been washed up on the banks. I would not have been a threat to Indiana Jones. I never found anything more than a few interesting bottles. An old steam locomotive and an obsolete snowplow car were stored there. I spent a fair amount of time exploring the two monuments of the past. There was also a Y for turning train cars around, located at the southern end of Curry. In that vicinity was the Dynamite Shack, a sturdy corrugated tin building. Just to the north of the hotel was a fallen down suspension bridge that crossed the Susitna River and connected to a path leading to a distant hex, hexagonal lookout and a panoramic view of Mount McKinley. By 1955, the bridge was nothing less than dangerous. For children going near the bridge, it was worth a severe spanking. Just ask me. I swear the whole town was watching that one. The decline wouldn't last much longer, though, and the Curry Hotel ultimately met a fiery end on the morning of April 9th, 1957. Curry had been no stranger to fires and the dangers of steam locomotives over the years, but a lack of personnel and firefighting equipment meant the fire would burn the hotel to the ground, taking three lives with it. The Railroad Reporter newspaper said the fire left nothing standing but twisted pipes and two chimneys. The Curry Hotel was gone forever. After the fire, and with Curry already somewhat obsolete, the railroad eventually decided to tear down most of the remaining buildings and relocate its operations over time. Some of the building materials made their way down the tracks to Talkeetna, where they were used to construct numerous buildings, some of which are still around. Perhaps the most visible example is the building that was originally built by the Rubino family in the early 1960s and would one day become a purple pizzeria called Mountain High Pizza Pie. Owner Todd Bassalone describes some of the things that he left the same when he opened his business more than a decade ago. The windowsill on the, the window that faces the House of Seven Trees in the front left corner of the building. Uh, Dawn Jones used to tie her horse up there as a child, and the horse would chew on the windowsill. So as I was rebuilding the building, Dawn told me about that, so I chose to leave that as it was and painted it. And... Uh, it's an interesting little thing. If you, you go to the window, you'll see that it's been, it's been well chewed. <laughs> I didn't chew it, so that's, I guess that's why I wanted to make that statement. And, you're, and you've kept the original windows. Yes, the original, original windows. Those were from Curry originally. And uh, so I had to replace some of the panes in them. And it looks like I have one I have to replace again. But, uh, yeah, we, I uh, scraped them all down. And, and I... I really, that was one of the things I really wanted to do was keep those because I thought that that was they were pretty important for the the look of the front of the building. Even though they're not exactly uh, the most uh, efficient windows as far as heat and everything goes, I think that they add a lot of character or keep a lot of character to the building. So, other bits and pieces of curry persist in various buildings in the area as well. When we return for part three of this episode, we'll talk to people who lived in the area of curry after the hotel and essentially all of the town were gone. 
Welcome back for part three of this episode of the Blue Tarp, discussing the railroad ghost town of Curry, Alaska. While the town mostly disappeared after the hotel burned, people continued to live in the area, especially those with ties to the Alaska Railroad. In 2009, Janet Valentine described her family's life in the Curry area from 1965 to 1968. At the time, her husband Glenn worked out of what was left of the railroad buildings at Curry. There was um, just a, a kind of a barracks building where the railroaders would come in and they would come from Anchorage to Curry and stop and have a meal and they would then they would go on from Curry to Healy and spend the night up in Healy. <laughs> but if there was a work crew like they were plowing, maybe they would be plowing up by Broad Pass, then they would bring them back and as a foreman that was one of Glenn's jobs was to work with the work crew and and because he was most familiar with his track and so he would work with them all day and then they'd come back and eat at the Curry Mess Hall and and sleep there. Curry was situated on the Susitna River which has long been a major factor of life in the area since long before the first white settler arrived. In the mid-1960s, though, there weren't the volume of fishing and recreational boats that we can see today. Janet Valentine said in the same 2009 interview that she and her family saw a much different kind of traffic on the Susitna. We were lucky to have the apartment that was um, overlooked the Susitna River. Oh, nice. And so we saw activity out on that river. On, in the summertime, it was bears coming to eat out of the garbage. And... Uh, lots of birds and sometimes even eagles fighting with ravens over a salmon. And, and in the wintertime, sometimes we had wolves out there on the river. And Janet's son, Chad Valentine, remembers being a young boy in Curry. He says kids that grew up in the few railroad families that remained in the area were able to largely run free. While the scale of operations at Curry were vastly reduced between the diesel locomotive and the catastrophic fire, Chad says Curry still served some of the same purposes for the railroad that Chef Nicholas Moricus described a quarter century before. The entire downstairs was a, a dining hall, living room area for these freight train guys that would come and take a break, mm -hmm. and also work trains. Um, we used to get a lot, of, a lot more snow back then than we got now, and so that they used to run, they still run them, but not to the frequency that they, they used to. Um, they used to call them snow fleets, and they would base a train that was only there for removing snow. Hmm. had huge plows and stuff on mm -hmm. the front of it. And those freight trains, or uh, snow fleets, would be based out of there and work that section, and so they would be there for multiple days and stuff like that, along mm. with the rail. And then if you're if they're doing any construction along the Susitna River, those crews would be would stay there. Mm. So the upstairs was um, two apartments. Our family was in the far back end on the Susitna end. There was one more apartment for the, uh, the work crew. Um, we're actually still friends with one of the guys that used to be on the work crew. Um, the Valentines left Curry when Chad was old enough to go to grade school. If you haven't already, you can hear about some of his memories as one of the last students in Talkeetna's historic schoolhouse in episode one of the Blue Tarp. While Curry is far removed from its former grandeur as a resort, there's still some evidence of what was once there. A riverboat trip reveals rusting tanks and other items from the middle of last century, and a ride on one of the last flagstop trains in the world can get you there to see what's left of the foundations and some of the artifacts that have resurfaced over the years. 
That's all for this episode of The Blue Tarp. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it and leaving a review on the podcast app where you found us. If you want more information on today's topics, you can check out Ken Marsh's Lavish Silence and Alaska Nelly's autobiography. The Blue Tarp is a production of Talkeetna Community Radio, Inc. and KTNA Talkeetna. It's produced in partnership with the Talkeetna Historical Society. Our sponsors for Season 1 are Studio Z Yoga, Mahay's Jet Boat Adventures, Denali Arts Council, Sheldon Chalet, West Hair Studio, Moore's Hardware and Building Supply, Talkeetna Historical Society, Realtor Deanne Autry with McKinley View Real Estate, and Talkeetna Northern Guest House. The Blue Tarp is also made possible in part by the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, Community Counts Initiative. More information is available at nfcb.org. Elliot Hunker voiced our sponsor messages. Peter Matisson voiced Chef Nicholas Morricus. Interviewers for this episode were Holly Stinson, Cece Schoenberger, and Sue Dio. Archival tape was produced by Holly Stinson. The Blue Tarp theme was written and performed by Larry Zarella. Other music included in Blue Tarp episodes was written and performed by Doug Geating, Larry Zarella, Deborah Wessler, and Steve Durr. We would also like to give a special thanks to the members of the Blue Tarp's editorial board. This episode was narrated and produced by me, Philip Manning. You can find out more about the Blue Tarp, including photos of Curry and how to support the show at ktna.org. Mm-hmm.